Welcome, everybody, to the first of a very special set of episodes of Talking Feds. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. We're here in Washington, D.C. this week to tape a series of podcast episodes in front of a live audience just blocks from the White House Thanks to our gracious hosts here at the George Washington Law School, uh, George Washington University Law School. Thanks to your graciousness for having us. All right, and of course, it's not just any week, but one that's going to be in the history books that we'll tell our grandchildren about. Uh, All this week, we will be talking about impeachment as the House gears up to undertake its grave constitutional responsibility. Tomorrow, the House will begin impeachment hearings of President Donald Trump, only the fourth time anything like this has occurred in U.S. history. And the title of this panel is Deja Vu, The Trump Impeachment and Impeachment's Past. As it suggests, we want, in our too short 50 minutes to be drawing contrasts and comparisons between 1974, 1998, and today, and especially from the vantage point of the House Judiciary Committee, because we are incredibly privileged to have members, representatives from that committee from each of the three uh, impeachments passed, and we have a phenomenal set of guests to discuss uh, I, I really haven't seen a show like this, and I've been wanting to see it for uh, months, so we decided to do it ourselves. So first, <laughs> we are really honored to have Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon, who represents Pennsylvania's 5th congressional, congressional District. She is, as you know, Vice Chair of the House Judiciary Committee and a member of the House Committee on Rules. Previously, she was the National Pro Bono Counsel at Ballard Spar, where she oversaw like 600 lawyers and 15 offices doing all good. Welcome, <laughs> Congresswoman. Thank you. Thanks for being here. We are honored also to welcome Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, who has represented the 18th Congressional District of Texas since 1995. In other words, since before the Clinton impeachment and the Congresswoman, who's now a senior member of the House Judiciary Committee, was also on the, this is not her first impeachment. Thank you so much for being here. We're joined by Lanny Brewer, who is vice chairman at Covington and Burling. He served as assistant attorney general for the criminal division at the U.S. Department of Justice under President Obama. But more to the point here, he was special counsel to President Bill Clinton during his travails in 1998. Thank you very much for being here. And finally, we are... Supremely honored to welcome to Talking Feds Elizabeth Holtzman, who was at the time the youngest woman ever elected to Congress, a record that stood until 2014. During her distinguished tenure representing New York's 16th Congressional District, uh, she served on the House Judiciary Committee, and in 1974, 
She was one of the members who recommended three articles of impeachment against President Richard Nixon. Thank you so much for coming down from New York to join us. She was going to do this by phone and came personally to be here. All right, so let's get right to it. We're, we're already down to 46 minutes. So let's start with just a few words about the hearing tomorrow. We know now that um, Representative Schiff, who's a former assistant U.S. attorney, looks to be preparing for the hearings like a prosecutor. There's going to be an opening statement. There's going to be between him and another former prosecutor who's a counsel to the committee, Danny uh, Goldman, will be doing questions uh, from the transcript of the witnesses that you know about. I want to just compare that structure that that we're having tomorrow uh, and with its and whether you think it's effective, but also how it compared with the approaches of the committee in Watergate and during the Clinton impeachment. Was it like that? How was testimony again at the House level adduced? And and did you think it was effective way to get the the facts out? The uh, or and do you think that the Schiff approach is um, uh, promising? Um, can we start with you, uh, Liz? Uh, well, the House Judiciary Committee during Watergate did basically no investigation. Most of the facts had been, or many of the facts had been brought out in public hearings. Uh, they may have been depositions beforehand by the Select Senate Committee on Watergate, uh, chaired by uh, Sam Irvin of North Carolina. So the Senate brought out um, important facts and educated the American people primarily about the cover-up of the Watergate break-in by President Nixon. Uh, that's where John Dean testified about the cancer on the presidency. Uh but we also received information from the grand jury, the Watergate grand jury, and the judge, uh, through a court order, uh, permitted the grand jury to, to turn over to us what was known as a roadmap, uh, basically evidence that would uh, affect our ability to determine whether pr the role President Nixon played in, in the cover-up and in other things. Um, so, so when it came time to actually vote it out, what was what was the work product you were looking at, and did you do anything further to either develop or recapitulate the evidence? Uh, the evidence, first of all, the committee itself had to be educated. So the way that was done was in closed-door hearings um, where the staff compiled the information from those two sources and possibly from other hearings that had been held and presented it to the committee um, in what was called statements of fact. And they were read to us so that nobody could say, I never knew what was going on. You had to hear it. You had to listen. And they also gave the opportunity for people to challenge the, the statements of fact. So the Republicans had every opportunity to say, well, the statement of fact says that on such and such a day, Richard Nixon did that. Well, what's the support for that? What's the backup for that? So no counter-presentation, no dim, then a, just no, a neutral that, statement well, of fact. we didn't have Republican and Democratic counsel. Ah, huge. That was a very big difference. Democrats had a Republican counsel, and of course the Republicans had a Republican counsel. So the statements of facts were presented to us. It was the committee members who could challenge it. 
And then the first time we had public um, – anything in public really about the substance was in our debates on the articles of impeachment themselves. And those articles, uh, when we had the debate, their opening statements, and then we had to back up the articles, the exact um, – the evidence in the articles. And I think the sincerity of the members, the solid evidence that we had – we didn't have the smoking gun tape at that time – and the fairness of the proceedings really persuaded the American people. You may not have understood every single fact, every single argument, but persuaded the American people about the justice of the cause of removing President Nixon from office. So first, what a dramatic contrast. The, the yes. fact development originates in the Senate. And then and the grand jury. And then and the grand jury. You're given... Uh, a precy of it behind closed doors, apparently without riots and anybody storming the chambers. Press and 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 then you 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 come forward and do a debate on an already sort of established book of evidence. How about the Clinton impeachment? Thank you. Well, first of all, um, I'm with such good company, and I'm certainly with my fellow colleague on Judiciary Committee, and we all have mutual respect. And I didn't know I was going to be reunited with uh, Lanny uh, because we were together in 1998. Uh, let, let me just uh, do this for a moment. I'm so glad you started with this question. And forgive me, but I am a mentee of Barbara Jordan, and she was on that committee, and she preceded me in Congress on my district. And so I'm just going to read these these lines for for us to contemplate. And this was from John Marshall, who wrote the Federalist Papers. A constitution intended to endure for ages to come and consequently to be adapted to the various crises of human affairs. And I think our colleagues on the other side of the aisle have really lost uh, their focus. But what happened in 1998 was that the Independent Council Statute existed. It existed in 74 and existed in 1998. So in actuality, um, the grand juror was Ken Starr, uh, who presented this whole uh, mismatch, if I might say, of facts and, of course, uh, the most stark and striking and, and provocative, and it was intended to do so, was the dress and all of the innuendo. He People had, remember the trucks pulling up yeah. with the, you know, the huge <laughs> volumes to be delivered. Yeah, It was, um, he had started on uh, uh, Whitewater and, and other things, and then all of a sudden, late night calls, uh, almost like uh, your television program, some late night calls got in and said, I have something else. Uh, and uh, that's how it pivoted to this particular uh, scenario. So it was presented. In 1998, um, the House Judiciary Committee did have counsel. We had Abby uh, Lowell. Um, we hired uh, to, uh, when I say that, uh, the Democrats who had a, a different perspective um, had counsel, but the, the counsel was to deal with uh, the counsel that the Republicans uh, enthusiastically embraced was with Mr. Starr. They they really had something, as they say, the tiger by the tail. And I am a um, pro animal activist, so I don't <laughs> want anybody to take that <laughs> comment out of context. But in any event, that's how. And so we, along with our Democratic Council, to be fair, uh, and then the President's Council had time to cross examine or make presentations. In that Judiciary Committee. And but, who were you cross-examining? Uh, well, Starr himself? Starr himself. Um, and the lawyers were cross-examined. We had time for that. Members came in, I think, after the fact and did some question. But let me just tie this one point. 
what we have now so that the public can hopefully ultimately understand are the investigatory process that was done by Starr and Jaworski in Watergate. So we don't have the independent counsel statute anymore, which the president has obviously uh, is excited about the confusion he causes. Why are my lawyers not here? And of course, the Republicans cause confusion. Why are we not in the room? They were in the room, but why are the president's lawyers? Because it was the investigatory process, or it is the investigatory process, like a grand jury or otherwise. And so what you're going to see tomorrow uh, is what will be given to us, and they're still investigating. So they will give the witnesses, will now be seen by the public, and then uh, it will be up to them to write a report uh, and give it to the Judiciary Committee, which at that time can still call a witness or two. Obviously, strategy has to be in place, um, conversations, uh, chairman, but then that is where that report gets housed that was a report given by Watergate, the report given by Starr, and of course, as we mentioned, they had the Senate proceedings in um, in Watergate. And then it gets taken over to judiciary. What we will get is from the three committees that everyone has been hearing about, oversight, um, state, excuse me, foreign affairs, and of course, um, intelligence. They will walk that report over uh, to the Judiciary Committee in place of a special counsel, independent counsel. I think the president wants not to be a fact finder. Um, he wants to disabuse Americans of the facts and wants to label us as the uh, as a as a a, a disrespecting uh, the Constitution. She's holding up the Constitution yeah. for of, you. Of disrespecting the Constitution. And I'm, this is just a small quote. I guess they just took it and put it in this book, uh, which we're supposed to use for the crisis of human affairs. We have that crisis now. We are following that constitutional roadmap of what we're supposed to do. I want to follow up just with one quick point and then turn to Lanny to amplify a little bit about the Clinton impeachment We've been hearing, I've, some, I've sometimes been um, having to counter this point uh, on, on TV that there have been some failures of due process in the way things have gone. I'm a, I'm a longtime prosecutor. Every investigation, a prosecutorial investigation, a congressional investigation, begins by who's ever investigating, who will be the prosecutor if she or he brings charges, has witnesses in a room, talks to them for a long time, all kinds of boring things from, from what they had for, for breakfast to little nuances to really what we'll see tomorrow is the greatest hits. But the notion that there's something anomalous or improper about initially talking to witnesses, by the way, it would have been incredibly boring, among other things, for 10 hours of this, of this sort of stuff. That is just completely routine. And there's, uh, for very good reasons, you would never have the the person you're investigating be in the room, among other things. Witnesses then could um, uh, co correspond their stories to one another. So, for for example, the correction that Sondland had to make to his story, that couldn't happen if you're all together. But it's just... It's it's so not a due process situation. It's just a, a completely routine investigation. Lenny, I just wanted to get your thoughts from the lawyer standpoint and ask in general, and I'll ask this of Congresswoman Scanlon as well, do you feel that both sides in Clinton were able to present their best 
case based on the structure or did the structure impede their ability to to really give their best arguments? Well, well, Harry, I think the fundamental difference now with what happened in Clinton was though we were very vigorous and zealous in our defense of the president. We felt fundamentally that what the president did affected his moral rectitude and his personal conduct, but did not reach constitutional proportions. We thought that the process was unfair. We thought that the the Judiciary Committee, controlled by the Republicans, was unfair. But not for one minute, not for one minute did we refuse to participate. We understood, as Congresswoman uh, Sheila Jackson Lee pointed out, that impeachment is a part of the Constitution. And whether we thought it was fair or not fair, and we did not think it was fair. Indeed, one of my colleagues on the day that the uh, report came to Congress said, there is nothing fair about this process at all. But not for one moment did we think that we could defy subpoenas, could we defy a co-equal branch. We fought hard and we had arguments. So the first point is the notion that a White House completely refuses to participate, I think, is extra constitutional. It's completely uncalled for. It's improper and it it flies in the face of what's ever Mm -hmm. happened before. But once we participated, no, we didn't think it was fair. Um, Ken Starr, you know, delivered his mm-hmm. report. Yeah, give us the quick, you know, what happened in the what four days or so of yeah. the actual so, hearings of the American right. people. Right. Well, had. what happened first was that the report, you know, with great fanfare. I mean, today, you know, with the young people in the audience, they can't imagine. But back then, these SUVs going—I <laughs> mean, that was a big deal, and we were watching it, and there was leaking all the time, and. Mm-hmm. Quite honestly, the leaking had two effects. On the one hand, it was profoundly unfair. But candidly, and this is a little immodest, President Clinton had a very uh, well-prepared group of lawyers, and all we did was we were devoted to defending him. So because of the leaks... By the time Congress got the report, we had it literally about a 200-page rebuttal that we relied mm-hmm. on basically based on leaks and contacts with lawyers. So we weren't For, that— Like su- Mueller, you know, by right. the time it came. Mm-hmm. We, we, were pretty, we were pretty prepared for it. But unlike mm-hmm. Mueller um, and unlike what happened when Liz was in Congress— uh, Congress took the um, uh, the Star report and within two days just released it, and it was the closest thing to pornography. I mean, it was an incredibly raucous, incredibly vibrant. It was meant to embarrass the president. And so our thesis throughout was that the president had, of course, been embarrassed and humiliated. And one profound difference was by the time the House is considering this, Maybe too late, but the president has acknowledged his errors. He has spoken to the American people and he has admitted he has done wrong. Not to the Same. point of an impeachment and constitutional uh, proportions, but he admitted as an individual he had failed, and then we could argue from that. He didn't Whereas, say his relationship with Monica Lewinsky was perfecto. Proper, right, perfecto, <laughs> right. We weren't right. dealing. So it's, it's, it's really very different that way. And then just to answer your question, Harry, we only had a couple of days. You know, we had, uh, we had witnesses. Yeah, did you get, you had the 200, but did you get to really fairly? Uh, no, we had, we had, we had, um, uh, first a half an hour, and I think ultimately an hour to cross-examine Ken Starr, which was preposterous. We were able to um, 
bring witnesses who are expert. Liz was one of our great witnesses talking about what should or should not be constitutional. We really had eminent scholars, but, but absolutely not. We didn't think it was fair at all, but nonetheless, we participated completely. And I, I want to make two follow-up points. Again, one of the criticisms we've heard is, well, the whistleblower's account is hearsay. It's not. Well, all you guys had was the prosecutor himself to summarize. The, there, there was no. There was actual, no independent review and, by yeah. Congress at all. And another, I think, even bigger point when, and and this goes to Congressman uh, Jackson Lee, when you have a Jaworski mm-hmm. or a um, Cox or even a Ken Starr or Bob Mueller on the uh, actual, on the trail, the White House can't simply thumb its nose. What's going on here is if there were an active prosecutorial entity, people who who were just ignoring legal mandates might find themselves under criminal investigation or potential, and potentially there'd be cooperation between DOJ and Congress. But under this, Attorney General in this Department of Justice, people know they're really there's no possible collateral consequences. So you do have this stunning spectacle of people s- sort of taking it as you know precatory whether or not to, to obey a congressional subpoena. Um, well, just for a moment, it's it's um, here today and gone tomorrow. I think your point is very well taken. I'll just say this very quickly, um, and I think Lanny articulated it. first. It should be noted. I think when the Republicans, the rules he was operating under were Republican rules. Uh, the uh, the attitude of the American people for impeachment at the time was about 31 percent, quite different than, than where we are even today. But the point was, yes, there was status in the independent counsel statute and the individuals who were independent counsel and obviously Archibald Cox, they, they did have status. So there there is there is not that singular prosecutor uh, who has that independent authority uh, to look you in the eye and say, yes, I will uh, subpoena you and I will have you in court or I will have you under criminal charges. Um, we in the Congress, I think, are doing a um, enormous task well. Uh, we are using the deck that is dealt, and that is that— Well, you're having to have the deck. Yeah. No one's given you the no. deck. No, and, and, and we are the, as they say, we are the investigators, and one would say that we are, in quotes, a special prosecutor. So your point about the hammer— uh, that that Watergate that that uh, Leon Jaworski uh, had, which uh, we well know his prestige, uh, the, uh, the the leadership of Archibald Cox, and certainly uh, Ken Starr was knowledgeable in and of himself. But the point is that the authority of that statute allowed them to have more of a heavy hammer than what we have, and I think we've done a mighty job. And I'll just finish on this note. And you know, I served as a um, uh, a former judge in, in what we call the misdemeanor court. And, and so what I would say is that uh, even in that court, because sometimes the people speak for themselves, um, the the idea that there was a denial of due process, even in that court, some prosecutor comes up who has investigated before they get into the court to give the due process to the person who's being charged. Uh, and the last point I would say um, is that the the Democrats during the 1998 impeachment proceeding, as I believe we are going to be, were very well prepared and I think handled themselves uh, from John Conyers on uh, very, and not because I was on that panel, because I certainly was uh, one of the, the the newer members. But the point is, is that we took it seriously and we were prepared 
And I would hope the president's council thought that we were prepared uh, in, in proceeding because we knew how serious it was. Okay, so one thing we can say is both Watergate and Clinton are hugely different in how they're structured, how people learn about the facts, even how the House learns about the facts from today and what's happening mm-hmm. in, in, in uh, the, the, the Trump uh, uh, impeachment. So turning finally, and thanks for your patience, <laughs> Congresswoman Scanlon, how you how are you feeling now about the way you've approached it, whether it's, you know, uh, relative to these other models, the, the, uh, a sanguine way to be getting things, things out and what, you know, the structure we're going to see tomorrow, what's it designed to do and, and what are you, what do you think the prospects are? Well, so, so tomorrow's my one year anniversary of getting sworn into Congress. So it's been quite wow. a year. Um, yeah. but as I was listening to Liz talk about how things were delivered, um, I was really jealous because, you know, there are certainly parallels between what happened in Watergate and what's happening now, um, particularly around issues like cover-up. Um, they were handed a grand jury report that was like a roadmap. Well, it took some time, but we were handed a report from the special counsel Mueller, which read like a roadmap. But the problem was we could never get past that because there was this just unfathomable unfathomable, yes, this really hard denial (laughs) of the right to see any of the underlying materials. I mean, today, for the first time, we're seeing some of those underlying materials that were redacted and not provided to us because they were part of grand jury proceedings or or ongoing criminal investigations. So um, today we had Gates, Paul Manafort's um, second, testifying in the Roger Stone trial, that, in fact, he overheard the president having phone calls with Stone about when WikiLeaks dumps were going to occur. That information had been before denied. Before the dumps did occur, because we know Stone the dumps, knew them. Yeah. Right. Before the dumps did occur, and the president answered questions under oath to the special counsel saying he did not have that knowledge. It would have been really nice to have that information back in March or April when the report first came out instead of the dribs and drabs that we've seen now. So I think we have learned from what happened with the stonewalling with respect to that report and the denial of information that Congress should have had. So when the, when yet another violation came up with respect to the, the shakedown of the Ukraine, um, that we moved, Congress moved much more quickly and is just going directly to the source and getting the information that we can as quickly as possible because we can't afford to, you know, wait for the administration to agree to do its constitutional duty. Yeah, I mean, in general, this time lag, and, and I'm sorry, Liz, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to to make a small historical point here, which is, first of all, the Nixon impeachment process is the only one that actually worked to remove a president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Okay. And secondly, um, the fact of the matter is that the analogy is we had the benefit of the Senate Watergate public hearings after they took depositions. Those hearings educated the American people about the basic facts of the cover-up. We had nothing like that here. Why? Because the Republicans were in control of Congress for the last two, for two years, and they didn't have public hearings. Very interesting. They had hearings, but did anyone ever see Donald Trump Jr. testify in public? or Jared Kushner testify in public. So they wanted to hide this from the American people. And so what's happened now is that Congress has to kind of make up for the public education element that we had the benefit of. 
So that's what I, that's how I see these hearings that are taking place starting tomorrow. This will educate the American people about, in public, about who the witnesses are, what the basic elements are, let the, the American people kind of <laughs> kick the tires, if you will, take the temperature of these witnesses, see if they think they're credible. I think that that's really important. But we in the House Judiciary Committee during Watergate, during the Nixon impeachment process, this, we had the Senate to do that work. It's a huge point. So I that's mean, and, a very big and, and, difference. But yeah. I, So I think that the Democrats have really had to make up for two more than two years of lost time here. And, and not only that two years of lost time, but as Lanny Brewer pointed out, we have a president now who's defied the mm. Constitution in a really fundamental way. He's, I don't Stain like the impeachment process. Well, who likes to be impeached? I want to know a president that's going to say, yeah, yeah. man, well, let I'm it go at me. The but I mean, but we, the point yeah. is that if you're going to deny the impeachment process, you're denying the fundamental last resort that the framers of the Constitution fashioned to protect our democracy. So to, to, to threaten that, to denigrate that, to defy that, to undo that, to, to destroy that power means that the Congress will not be able to protect the democracy either against Donald Trump or anybody in the future. And that's really what's at stake here. And, yeah, it's and a, yeah. that's right. really and, terrifying. And it's a, well, it's a, yeah, and I, I mean, I, I just want to say what's on, one of the things that are unfathomable. I mean, even in the in what I what seemed to me at the time, the hyper partisan days of Clinton and but definitely in, in Watergate, it was understood. I, I guess this really picks up on, on, on Congressman Jackson Lee's point. You get a subpoena, you comply with this. What's, well, what wait, Nixon on, didn't. Uh, uh, but nevertheless, he was a. He, uh, that's true. But right. there were his his advice. I mean, this was a very grave moment with advisors around him. The casualness of the uh, of the complete disregard of of congressional duty here, I think, is a is a structural difference in the in, and a, and a well, more and and a bigger obstacle in what you're. Yeah, he everyone, didn't everyone block everyone for working yeah. for him. Just you know, for fiat, coming in completely. But I mean, my, Dean my came question in actually and, yeah. for everybody else in the panel, yeah. since I'm the only one here who's not served in Congress to run yeah. for office, mm-hmm. is it's really sort of extraordinary as someone who has worked with. Congress, who's represented a president, who's represented institutions and individuals throughout, who've had to testify before Congress, that really so many members of Congress are willing to let the constitutional power of the legislative branch just go up in smoke. Mm -hmm. And whether it's because there is fear, and I really mean it, fear that is the emanating motive or not. It's sort of extraordinary, whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, or whatever, that you're part of an institution, you understand the power that the founders have given your institution, and yet you're willing to let it all go. And I think that is one of the tragedies that we're seeing right now. And in a piece I wrote, I said it really makes every private litigant forever wonder, why should I Mm -hmm. have to comply with a subpoena? It, It seems pretty easy. You don't have to. And so that's a remarkable phenomenon. Well, if if I might, as I was listening to you, I, I, I think I was quivering because I, I think that is the crux of where we are today. This this is this is what will keep you up at night or mm-hmm. or keep you up up to three a.m. or either you wake up at three a.m. Mm-hmm. and that is the uh, outright conspicuous and blatant abuse of power. This is frightening. Um, and what I want to say is uh, the Mueller report was a. Uh, 
well-documented, articulate, uh, filled with major work by competent counsel, unbiased from my perspective, who dug into the weeds of this administration early on. The operative contacts in volume one were without comparison to any other administration in 45 presidencies. The volume two and the 10 uh, items of obstruction of justice, now it looks like we just put them on the shelf of <laughs> Target or, you know, not even in the library, um, were overwhelming for any lawyer or anyone that would that that could read it. And I understand the American people, if you wanted to take time, if you wanted to stand on a street corner and read from it, and people would pass by and said, what? It's unbelievable. But what we had in the middle that we did not have, I believe, with uh, Clinton, at least, I know that there was a tumbling of AGs under Nixon, is an AG, attorney general, the people's lawyer, that came out and said, there was no collusion. Uh, anybody that's just getting on a bus, going to work, or has no time to deal with it, they just heard that. They 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 checked that box, and then the president was exonerated. He did that before we even got this in our hands. That's a big voice that says, "Don't worry about it." And from there, we had an uphill landing. Mm-hmm. We had an uphill journey. Because somebody says the attorney general, I think the American people, I mean, this has racked us from the moment the American people can under, understand that. And so that big book, which in and of itself would generate impeachable offenses by way of abuse of power, which is really, uh, it's not written anywhere, but it really isn't. It's the crux mm-hmm. of what we are trying to prevent, to protect you, which is that someone can abuse power, uh, can abuse power in the absence of the light shining on them to the detriment of the American people. Mm-hmm. And and no one's mentioning Attorney General Barr. I mean, we're, we're still trying to, to, to locate him, but um, <laughs> it, it's very difficult for, you know, for all of us who have this honor and, and respect for this institution. I guess my last sentence is that Nixon had a respect for the institution mm-hmm. And, and President Clinton had a respect for the institution. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk wow. about a contrast, <laughs> contrast Bill Barr to Elliot Richardson, the role that the Republican attorney general played in the in 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 Nixon's actually having, you know, being being um, eventually ushered out. We, we it was, it's, it's night and day. Yeah, with, but but with the, the comparison. General Barr. Yeah. Um, and the true comparison, though, is not with, with Elliot Rob- Richardson. It's with John Mitchell, uh-huh. who was the attorney general. And John mm-hmm. Mitchell went to prison. And one of the That's reasons that That's John a, yeah, Mitchell went to prison, point. and by the way, Nixon was named as a co-conspirator with John Mitchell and Haldeman and the rest, because they were all in various conspiracies. So we actually have an attorney general went to prison, and Klein Deese was also charged with a crime. He was the next attorney general. So let's <laughs> we no, have no, had a couple a very, of real baddies there. Point. But the point I wanted to make, just in, in response to what uh, Congresswoman Jackson Lee said, is that I wrote the special prosecutor law, the first one. Mm. And we took away basically all the power we could from the attorney general because we knew the attorney general was political. In response to what Kenneth Starr did, they put back the power to the attorney general. Mm -hmm. And what this attorney general did was to use that power 
to squash the report, to distort the report, and to deceive the American people about what was in the report, and then to decide that there was no basis for prosecution. So one of the things that has to happen at some point is that that special prosecutor law has to be revived mm-hmm. and take the attorney general out to the to the fullest extent that's constitutionally possible because the president will never investigate himself someday herself but never investigate himself and that's part of the problem here and we still have ongoing issues i mean we just had a, what the attorney general just did recently was to take the whistleblower's report mm. and in the words of watergate deep six it which is what they tried to do in watergate cover up Factual information, that was one of the grounds <laughs> that cover up and two articles of impeachment. But the whistleblower's report went to, went to the attorney general's office. And what happened? They said, first of all, there was no uh, financial uh, campaign yeah, violation yeah. there. Of course, getting another government to mobilize all Project. of its prosecutorial yeah. resources is valueless, right? It's got like a zero. You couldn't even buy it, but that has no value. And then they decided there was no other crime involved. Well, on the face of it, you might have bribery in that conversation with President Trump and Zelensky. You might have bribery and you might have uh, extortion Mm -hmm. and no investigation was done of those things. So here we have an attorney general that's covered up a cover up. Or and certainly abandoned the not the not going forward. I just wanted to say briefly, I've really admired the House's recent discipline and what you guys have done, because I felt just as you did when people stopped showing up was like, what are you talking about? I was infuriated and wigged out about the whole notion but I think you have very coolly and calmly taken the ground jaw, and taken the short pass, as it were. And when they do that, they say, okay, we're putting you in that count of mm-hmm. abuse, and I'm, we're not going to keep fighting mm-hmm. and fighting to to do it. I think that's been really uh, wise. I th- I think when I've been home, that's been the question that I get the most is from your constituents. Can, from constituents, how can Congress not be able to enforce its own subpoenas? And at a certain point, it does come down to, okay, then we have to go to the ultimate result, which is impeachment. Yeah. Push us there. We have so much to talk about and not that much time to to do it. I, I want to actually touch on, by the end, how it all sort of played, how you feel personally and psychologically with the the kind of constitutional responsibility you have. Let me just ask briefly. It's kind of an obvious point, but it seems so huge to me. Watergate plays out in the Huntley and Brinkley black and white three network world, you come home to watch a little snippet. And then the Clinton impeachment is actually what kind of, it's the birth of CNN, people watch it. And now we have the whole smorgasbord, which, which has, and the, and the silos say of the different points of view as concretized in individual stations. How's that affecting things? What's your sense of the, um, the interplay between the kind of crazy cable social media world and the effort to actually have a responsible national investigation into the president's conduct. Anybody? Well, look, I'm the only one who doesn't get elected. And so I <laughs> defer to my colleagues here. I think it's a profoundly, I think it's profound. 
I think today, you know, when you have something like the Mueller report and hearing what everyone said, um, the the attorney general can define what was or was not in the report. And before anybody has read it or not, everybody is in their rival camps. And so Fox News describes it one way and MSNBC is going to describe it another way. And, and nobody's ever going to change their mind. And and so it's a bit skeptical. I worry about it. I worry, you know, now, no matter what is done, what is revealed in a hearing, are there enough people who are willing to be open enough to really listen to it and to open their hearts and open their minds? And when we spoke, when when the defense lawyers for President Clinton spoke, we we challenged the committee and we said to the members of Congress, we we hope you come here today with I forgot the exact language, but basically with uh, with respect for the law, a respect for the Constitution, and an open mind and open ears and eyes. And today I think that's hard, and I think most people immediately go to their camps. And so it's it's very different than when I was a kid and everybody watched the nightly news, and we had sort of... We, we had a construct that brought us together no matter where we were. So I do think it's very different. I mean, you had a couple Republicans who voted f- for out the articles of impeachment. Did you feel that people were genuinely persuaded <laughs> in other, that it was a process that people changed their minds, listened hard, and the like? Well, I think the, the chair of the committee, Peter Rodino, bent over right. backwards. I was talking to Lanny about this earlier to try to present to the American people that the process was fair. And he thought that it was important for that to be message to be sent because he didn't think that impeachment would happen and the removal of the president would take place because that's what the concern was, not just to have an impeachment, but to have him removed from office because he presented such a threat to our democracy, that that would not happen unless people felt that the process was fair and that the process was serious and that the process was based on solid evidence. So Rodino did some things to help make that happen. First of all, he had we had a Republican council for the Democrats, and the Republicans had a Republican council. That sent a message. We're not being partisan. The second thing was— By Republican, you mean his party was— it Yes, to the, be, yeah. the, right. Okay. And it was explicit, and that was the intention, to send a signal, important signal. The second thing was who drafted the Articles of Impeachment. The Southern Democrats, the most conservative Democrats, and the moderate Republicans, so that as many people as possible could be brought on board. Those were two important things that happened, and to bend on a lot of the procedural concerns that the Republicans had, so that there wouldn't be as many procedural fights, and people would have to fight about the facts, not the process. And that's that helped a lot. I think the American people never 100% understood all of the complexities because we had huge number of specific abuses that go to your point, Congresswoman right. uh, Jackson Lee. So many abuses of power. I mean, there must have been, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 of them in the articles of impeachment, not just the cover-up, you know, the enemies list, the legal wiretaps, the break into Ellsberg psychiatrists, all that stuff. Pain, right. So. I think that while they never, I think, understood every complexity, the American people, they got that this was a serious and fair process 
based on solid evidence and that the president represented a threat to the democracy. And that's the message that has to come out of it. The process has to be fair and seen to be fair. There has to be solid evidence. And, that, and the president has to be perceived and understood to be a threat to the democracy. And then the impeachment will not only work, but the president will be out of office. Yeah, very, very different state of affairs to try mm -hmm. to make that happen now. Um, you know, as Lanny says, I feel unbelievably privileged. We have three uh, members here, and I'd, I'd, I'd like to... Um, talk for a few, close for, you know, five or 10 minutes, just talking about what it, what it feels like for you. Um, Representative Holtzman famously talked about being overwhelmed by the Watergate scandal saying, I really felt as though I were in quicksand. Um, you know, what do you, so Representative Scanlon and Jackson Lee, what's it feel like for you now? Does it feel like, you know, a battle? Does it feel like the sort of sad discharge of an unavoidable constitutional duty? You know, when you think back on this time in your career, how will, how will you kind of remember the, the, the charge that you, that you had in these days? Um, well, it definitely gives you this historical perspective. I think I was in 10th grade during the Watergate <laughs> hearings. I'm sorry. Um, but I do well, I remember. <laughs> yes, exactly. I do remember taking time out from my summer and my high school pursuits to watch these hearings and feeling how grave it was. I'm thrilled to hear that uh, Representative Jackson Lee is also up at three o'clock in the morning fretting about this. I now know who to call because, I mean, it's it has been it's I mean, it is overwhelming. We are trying to do all the things that, you know, our constituents want us to do with respect to their daily lives, whether it's health care or stopping robocalls. And then you have this layered on top of it. And there's so much of it. Um, you talk about Nixon being a, a kind of an existential threat to our democracy. I mean, it feels that way with every fresh allegation about this president. Um, and I find that I kind of crash at the end of an evening, you know, pretty late, and then wake up at 3 a.m. going, okay, well, how can we do this? How can we make it appear fair when the, the, uh, fallback position, I guess, right now for the Republicans is trying to make it appear unfair because they don't have the facts and they don't have the law to say otherwise. So um, so it's tough. It is very grave. Well, let me, um, uh, for fear of my leadership saying uh, you have not been diverse in your conversation, let me just make sure that everyone knows uh, that we are, we are working on a, a myriad of legislative initiatives um, in spite of where we are, from lowering prescription drugs to uh, gun regulation to the environment uh, uh, to funding education. I, I just have to say that I, 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 our fear is that people are hearing us only through one bullhorn. But as I say that, that uh, the Democratic Caucus in particular, leadership in the House, uh, is working to carry on the nation's business, uh, there can be no doubt that this is one of the most serious moments, most crucial moments uh, and a couple of months ago, I started using the terminology somber and sober. Um, and uh, I've seen uh, my colleagues use the terminology. Um, and I think those words don't even equate to the moments uh, that we're going to face. I can, to this day, remember going into the committee room uh, on the day or the two days that we were making our speeches 
Um, and then ultimately there was going to be a vote. You really thought that you had uh, the nation or the world in your hands and that your decision... You're, you're remembering the This is 98. Now, yeah. Your decision was such uh, that the, the, the weight of the world... And I obviously up, uh, oppose that impeachment. Uh, you know, I use the Federalist Papers. I think Lanny was absolutely right. The team was absolutely right. Uh, personal indiscretions that no one would confirm or, or, or affirm or, or, or disregard. But I think it was not attuned to the acts of government. So I felt comfortable where we were. But the point is, the world was watching you know, you had the feeling that you remove a president or a president could be removed, and it does mean that there is disruption. I think what we have now um, is a double um, uh, sense of fear. It really is. And I, I hope these words are not taken um, uh, lightly or that I'm making light. Um, but the, the double fear is that this will not work. Because in order for it to work, we all have to have respect. Pointing to Constitution. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, in order for it to work, we all have to respect that, that, that three, Article 1, 2, and 3, which we have to date been taught to do. The Article 3 courts, federal courts, the... Um, Article One, the legislative branch, and then and then this, and so I think we will do our job in the Judiciary Committee, and and I do think um, working with my colleagues in the Judiciary Committee, please note that we were the stalking horse horse to tell the truth. I mean, we were given the duty to to keep having witnesses because we knew there was something there there, and we did it. I think in the most professional way we can. We happen to get some. Witnesses that were uh, unique, but but before the issue came up on Ukraine, if my calendar is right, we put forward rules of engagement of fairness. Let it be known, we put forward for Republicans to have their forty-five minutes of presentation, hiring lawyers back and forth, subpoena power with the affirmation of the chairman. In this instance, Chairman Nadler, that went out even before we even had uh, this smoking gun that has come up with Ukraine. We realized that we had to show the utmost detail and attention to fairness and due process. So here's my plea and here's my fear. It is the same kind of plea that Chairman Rodino made or maybe he didn't have to make, which is that people would put um, party under Nate, the country, and be patriot over party. And if there's a glimmer of light uh, that may shine in our committee or shine on the floor, if ultimately articles are approved, then it may ultimately go to the floor, then that is what my hope is. Uh, and my hope also is, if nothing else, if our friends who we have worked with and uh, we have stood on the steps I'm going to show a little age in 9-11 together as Americans as opposed to Republicans, Democrats, at least go to the White House and say, whatever your defense is, do not destroy this document. Do what Lanny has said happened with his counsel, that you respected 
this document and you participate to the fullest. You can fight to the death for your defense. That's what people do in the courts of law. That's what people do. Nobody asks you to come in there with your hands tied. Bring your defense. But you have to adhere to what the world is watching and saying, is this going to last? Is this democracy that we so admire? Is it going to last? And I think, um, if I might, that is what will be our dilemma. And will be we will work very hard to get that done. We we will we would like to have extend our hand to our friends on the other side, to Republicans, to join us in getting that done. Um, because this is greater than any one of us who are here today in 2019. This will reflect how this country can proceed with its business. Um, and so if there's anything uh, that, um, uh, you know, I'm going to go back to reading again. Forgive me. Uh, George Washington, the Constitution is a guide, which I will never abandon. Um, and that's what I hope will happen in this proceeding. All right. To also quote George Washington, you must strive to keep alive that little spark of inevitable, inimitable fire called conscience. Um, your comments that uh, about the world's watching and um, uh, the and and your uh, Republican colleagues put me in mind of a final question that I'd, I'd like to put to everybody on the on the panel. To you know, you might want to answer. Uh, quickly or or not, but I but but again in this historical arc or prism, my sense is that the Goldwaters and the Republicans who took that walk up the mm. hill yep. were very highly regarded in history as mm. heroic for that for that reason, mm -hmm. and they actually had redounded to their benefit. My sense is that the um, however the Republicans who made sort of a joke or mockery of the Clinton um, uh, impeachment were not really, did not pay a huge price in history. I could be wrong, and I speak that as a Democrat, so maybe I'm, I, I'm partisan, but, you know, have, I was at the court today and saw the junior justice who was, you know, one of Ken Starr's, uh, um, you know, biggest counsel, et cetera. So my, my question to close with is, you know, do you believe that there will be a historical reckoning. Do you believe that if the Republicans look the other way, that history will judge them harshly, or that it'll just be forgotten as as more you know poli normal politics? Can we go around the horn on that? Starting with you, Lanny. Sure. I, you know, Harry, I, I don't want to pretend I know how history is going to look <laughs> yeah. at Republicans or Democrats or others. And like Congresswoman Scanlon, I think I too was in 10th grade uh, during Watergate. So <laughs> well, we got, we got a yeah. good age group. What, the, what, what made me, when you were asking the question, what I did think of was something a little different, which was when we did the Clinton um, impeachment trial at the Senate, uh, and we knew the president was popular, uh, the the Democrats gained seats in the House in the midterm. We felt that this uh, was a personal, a terrible but a personal issue of the president. Nonetheless, we did not take for granted. We really did, and it's easy to think we did. We did not take for granted that the Democratic senators were all going to jump in line. And I and others thought that there were giants in the Senate 
giants on the Democratic side who might decide if this got too unseemly or if it just got, um, uh, you know, too, too difficult, that they too might decide one day to walk to the White House. And in our defense, we defended the president with great probity, very zealous, but with probity always accepting the system, but trying to make it as dignified a defense as we could, and always aware that we needed to keep our Democratic senators supporting us. But not for a minute, and we, I, others, woke up at 3 a.m. worrying about senators like Senator Moynihan and other senators, Senator Byrd, Senator Feinstein, and many others. Lieberman, for sure. So today my question is, does anybody worry? And I don't know, and I defer to my colleagues on this, who are those giants in the Senate, in the House? I'm a little younger, but I always think at the end of the day, and I think some congressmen said it, recently, at the end of the day, what really matters is when you look at your children and your grandchildren in the face. That's how we all live our lives. And I assume that's how members of Congress think about it, certainly what I think about. And so I think that's the question. I don't know what price you do pay or don't pay, but at some level, you have to yourself wonder about it. And the the, the question I have, and I have to be a little careful here, is I, I believe, but could be wrong, that the emanating emotion remains in Congress one of fear. And we never had that before. President Clinton was many things, but he was not feared. He just wasn't. You might think you liked him or didn't. And today I just wonder, and maybe that's a very thin defense, and when it breaks by one or two, it'll break by many. I'll defer to my colleagues, but that to me is the real question. Are there giants and would they ever decide I'm no longer going to just ignore what the Constitution demands? Congresswoman? I'm glad Lanny said I'm going to uh, uh, join him in his comments about not being a predictor of history, but um, certainly um, a student of history and reminded of some speeches that I had over the last couple of days telling um, how history professors how important their job is right now, um, no matter what grades or level that they're teaching, all the way up to um, where we are today in this esteemed uh, university. Um, and so uh, history um, is um, behind us, and it will be in front of us um, as we look on this set of circumstances. What I would hope and I'd like to turn my final comments into being an optimist uh, and forever holding on to hope that overall um, we would come collectively to the idea that this cannot be the new norm. This cannot be the behavior of the commander-in-chief, president of the United States. It cannot be the new norm for this nation. Now, you don't Uh, rise to the level of impeachable offenses for bad language and um, racial epithets and uh, conversations about uh, various people and and any number of things. And my prayer every day is that I have to remove myself from those kinds of uh, outside uh, exterior elements to be as faithful and true to the facts uh, when they may come before this committee. And, and And that's what my hope is. But then what I'd like to say is that I'm hoping that uh, in the course of settling down and hearing the fact that there will be either some in the House or some in the Senate, 
which will join me and say that this is not America as we know it and have come to love it. It is not the new norm. Um, um, and the facts speak for themselves. Um, one sentence, there's been a violation of law. Is someone going to throw up that or find a way to say it's not been? Um, secondarily, um, this is an estranged comment. Uh, you have uh, a, a former Marine and lifelong uh, student and member of the DOJ, Department of Justice, who said, if I could have exonerated him, I would have. That, that has long been lost. But if in the quiet moments when someone says, let me go back and look at all the facts, because that's what we're going to have to do when we prepare our remarks to say what, how we'll vote. If you have all of that and then you decide not uh, to uh, make a decision, uh, then I would say that history will look at each individual member and history will have those facts. And yes, you will be assessed as to what you did on that day. <coughs> Um, and maybe if there are some facts that come out that is uh, com a complete rebuttal and repudiation and others make a decision and say, I'm going ahead anyhow, history will look back. History will never ignore your time in history, your place in history and your actions. And so it'll catch up with you. I'm hoping in the course that history will reflect that there will be those um individuals in both houses uh, that would look to their patriotism. And I'm optimistic enough to think that that might happen. Congresswoman. I, I do have to share that optimism. After all, I was pro bono counsel. So I believe that, you know, we could get corporate lawyers to do things for the good of the country. Um, but I, I do share that. <laughs> I do share that optimism and and combine it a little bit with the the comment about fear. I do think many of our colleagues are are held up by fear right now, primary fear, whatever kind of fear they have. Um, but that if we can do our job and get the American people to pay attention, which is not easy given our fractured media, given the fact that even when we're trying cases now, um, people are less likely to convict unless there's a video of something actually happening. So, you know, how do we harness our modern technology? How do we harness sound bites and, and really present a case that's easily understood enough to move the American people just a little bit more, we're close, um, so that those people who are afraid to step out of line with the party as it is currently constructed um, feel like they have the cover to do that. Um, and that's what I'm very hopeful will happen. Because if that doesn't happen, I don't know that history will judge them badly because I think we will have entered into some kind of post-apocalyptic version of our country. So um, we're just going to keep doing the job and trusting the American people. And I think um, fittingly, we have final thoughts from yes. Representative Holtzman. Uh, thank you. I, I just, to me, Barry Goldwater was not putting country above party. I think we have to get pretty straight what he was doing. Mm. The midterm elections were upon us. And if the trial had taken place, we voted for impeachment at the end of in the, towards the end of July. Mm. Supreme Court came out with a smoking gun tape early August. 
the trial would have taken place. The House hadn't voted, would have taken maybe the House would have voted towards the end of August. The Senate, if it got the trial would have taken place in September, October. There wouldn't have been a Republican elected. So Barry Goldwater is going to Nixon and saying, you've got to resign, was to give the Republicans some prayer of having some people elected in November. As it was, the Watergate <laughs> Republicans paid a huge price for standing up for Nixon and supporting him. Uh, and the, the uh, Watergate class that was elected in 1974 was one of the biggest Democratic victories ever. So... Um, I don't know that we can <laughs> easily fall back on uh, putting party over principle or over country. That didn't happen with a lot of people, but it did happen. And I think that's the important thing I want to say. There were members of the House Judiciary Committee who took a courageous vote mm-hmm. and a principled vote and a vote that really could have cost them their seat in voting for um, the impeachment of Richard Nixon. But they did it. There were three Southern Democrats and uh, seven um, re- moderate Republicans who did that. And by the way, none of them lost their seats. That's the really important. None, nobody lost that election that November because of their vote. And I think the important thing is, Lana, you raise a point about fear. Well, if people can't, figure out a, con- a, a way of resolving this. If members of Congress can't, don't have enough of a conscience to figure out and enough of an understanding of the Constitution, then the question is, who are they going to fear? Are they going to fear Trump? Or are they going to fear their constituents? Are they going to fear the bullying, the bribery? Or are they going to fear not being elected, not being supported by their constituents? So this, in the end, is an issue for the American people. Are they going to stand up for the democracy? Ben Franklin said, you know, what we do here? We created a republic, republic if you can keep it. Well, that injunction is not, wasn't just for the people listening to Ben Franklin way back in the 18th century. It was for us every, and it's for every generation. And so will the American people really say What's at stake here is our Constitution and the rule of law. And that's ultimately what happened in Watergate. The American people decided more important than a president. It wasn't Barry Goldwater, but the American people decided. Even though they had voted for Nixon overwhelmingly, they changed their mind. They said more important than president is the Constitution and the rule of law. And if we can regenerate that sense of commitment, I think both of the uh, sitting congresswomen have, have made that point time and again, if we can regenerate that kind of commitment to the rule of law and the importance of that, then I think um, history books will will say the right thing about this Congress. If not, uh, I kind of agree <laughs> with Congresswoman Scanlon. What kind of democracy will we have and what kind of history books will be written? Will they be written by people who want to come out with a political <clears throat> objective? I mean, will truth matter? After this, who knows? So I, I but I'm I'm going to be optimistic <laughs> because I saw it, you know, and <laughs> Nixon was elected with this huge landslide. Who thought, whoever dreamed, he could be impeached? So I certainly didn't. I didn't want to be on the House Judiciary Committee because 
Where was impeachment? If I, and frankly, if I had wanted to be on it and there was an inkling that he'd be impeached, they never would have put me on it. So, <laughs> so I think that's really the uh, lesson here. Can we get the American people behind a commitment to rule of law? Um, we students of history in the room and listening have had really a remarkable uh, seminar. I feel really fortunate to have been this table, and I, I hope everyone uh, feels feels the same. Please join me. Thank you so much, Congresswoman Stanley. And special thanks to you uh, very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Thank you very much for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Thank you. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer with additional research by Sam Trachtenberg. Production assistance by Richard Gunther and Sarah Philippoum. Thank you very much to GW Law for hosting us. And thanks to Hayden Pendergrass of the GW Law Student Bar Association as well as the GW Criminal Law Society and the GW Immigration Law Society, our co-sponsors for this event. Thanks very much to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.